1: Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be convenient, comfortable. Ah.
2: Welcome to episode 593 with my guest Beth Lapidus. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office, more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is metalpod.com. There's a forum there. Uh, There's a place where you can fill out surveys. Maybe we'll read your survey on the show. Um, And you can support the show there through uh, either Patreon or PayPal or uh, Zelle. Let's dive into some surveys. Uh, First of all, before I say that, I've got to say, uh, I don't know what made me do it, but I switched, uh, I have an Apple iPhone, and I switched Siri's voice uh, from American to Irish, and I swear to God, I think it... It's improved my mood. There's something so just sweet and comforting about it. I don't know, man. The the littlest things sometimes will uh, make a difference.
1: Well done, Paul. You're a natural.
2: Well, thank you, Siri. Let's uh, read a couple of surveys. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey. This is filled out by... uh, a woman who calls herself Anna Major, and she asks, have you ever had a negative experience with a guest? That's a great question. I wouldn't say a negative experience, but I've had disappointing experiences with um, with guests. I've never experienced hostility, but I've experienced um, not hostility towards me. But I've experienced guests that were hostile and kind of wouldn't let their, their walls down. And uh, that, could be, that could be very frustrating. And one person who I was super excited to, to interview, and it was just such a disappointment. Um, but thank you for that.
1: Paul, it's a pleasure to guide you through your beautiful journey in life.
2: Thank you, Siri. I think I am falling in love with you. Uh, This is from the FEARS survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Goldilocks, and she writes, I fear that I married my first love because I was too afraid of being alone and unloved. I fear that I settled for my husband. I fear that my husband settled for me. I fear that I would be happier with somebody else. I fear that my husband would be happier with somebody else. I fear that my grass is greener obsession is going to sabotage the only real loving relationship I've ever known. I fear that I'm unwanted and undesirable. I fear that I am unlikable and unlovable. I fear that my constant need for validation will leave me unhappy and unsatisfied with any loving relationship I will ever be in. I fear that I will regret having children. I fear that I will screw up my children mentally as much as my parents did me. I fear that I will not love them. And I fear that my grass is greener obsession will sabotage my relationship with them. Thank you for sharing that and I think that's a really common thing. Um uh, when when we're in relationships and I I don't experience that in my current relationship with my girlfriend. I'm very satisfied with with our relationship, but I've been in relationships before where every day I would think is this is the right relationship for me, you know, etc. And I'm not just saying that because it's the current relationship that I'm in and my girlfriend listens. That that truly is um, the 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 truth but um i don't know if there's any answer for that other than doing work on ourselves and as corny as this sounds finding a way to love ourselves because i found the more compassion and the more i was okay with who i am the easier it was to love somebody else unconditionally i hope that makes sense this is from the body shame survey Uh, filled out by uh, a gender-fluid person who calls themselves Bugbear. And they write, I dislike my stomach, arms, double chin, my skin, etc. because those were the things people seem to hate the most about my appearance all my life. But I also like my stomach for how soft and huge it is. It feels almost protective. I like the self-harm scars on my arms because of the patterns. They've been there for decades, and it was a completely different time in my life, but very impactful. I like my body best when it's strong. Dealing with chronic pain, gaining more weight, and coming out as trans has made my self-esteem the lowest I've experienced as an adult. But I know if I spoke to anyone else in my position, I would give them the compassion and respect that I never allow myself. I want to continue working on that. that. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. This is, uh, normally I don't read the shame and secret surveys uh, before the interview, but uh, this one is filled out by a woman who calls herself, Are You Their God? Uh, I got to assume her name is Margaret. Uh, her She's in her 20s, identifies as bisexual, says she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. An ex-boyfriend coerced me into having sex when I didn't particularly want to. Um, uh, I would say if he was aware, if you expressed that you were feeling coerced, uh, either physically or verbally, uh, then that definitely, definitely counts. Um, She's also been physically and emotionally abused by him. And... To the question, any positive experiences with the abuser? Absolutely. I still look back at our relationship with such a fondness, and I feel guilty for that, and it makes me feel like maybe I wasn't treated as badly as I make it out to be. Uh, Darkest thoughts. I think about cheating on my male fiancé with a female. My fiancé is the greatest man I've ever known, and he does nothing but take care of me, so I could never cheat on him, but I'm also not sure if I can get married without ever having slept with a girl. I've known I was bisexual since I was 13 and yet have never even kissed a girl. Darkest Secrets I can only orgasm while watching lesbian porn. Any male in the mix immediately turns me off. I've also masturbated to the sound of my mom and stepdad having sex in the other room, and I've never admitted that to anyone because I'm so disgusted with myself for it. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My most powerful sexual fantasy is to have another girl perform oral on me. Writing that makes me feel ashamed because I'm engaged to a man who I never engage in any physical, physically intimate acts with. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my fiancé that I want to have sex with a girl before we get married. I can't tell him that because he's very insecure about the fact that we never have sex. In the parentheses, all because I don't want to. And I think it would devastate him to think I would want to have sex with someone else. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could just be happy with my perfect fiancé and not want for more. Have you shared these things with others? No. A lot of my friends know I'm bisexual, but I've never shared any specific fantasies or anything. How do you feel after writing these things down? Empty. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I'm sorry that you're feeling like you're in that place. And um, is one of the reasons I wanted to read this was I just wanted to, to suggest a couple of questions that you might ask yourself, and maybe before you uh, get married. Uh, is not wanting to have sex with your fiancé something that you you guys have talked about um, transparently and openly in a way that there's nothing left under the rug so that there aren't any uh, miscommunications about expectations because that might be a big deal for uh, for him. Um, are there, and maybe this is none of my business, but uh, are there other males that you are Attracted to and uh, who you would would have sex with. I don't know. Maybe that's fucked up for me for for me to ask because maybe that's my way my way of saying. Well, maybe you're not attracted to any man, and you should uh, dump this guy and uh, see what it's like to uh, have a relationship with a woman, and then decide. But I don't know. I don't know if that's stupid of me to say, but that. Uh, Reading this survey, um, just a lot of questions came up. And so, if you were my friend and we were sitting having coffee, those would be the things that that I would uh, I would ask you.
1: You fucked that up.
2: Wow. Well, okay. I thought I, I mean I did the best that I could.
1: I think someone is projecting their inadequacies. Uh, moving on. I guess nobody has told you. How can I put this? You're quite draining. What? Not my opinion. Scientific fact.
2: I don't understand. You were so nice to me a couple of minutes ago. What heck?
1: Paul, don't be naive. Not on top of all your other bullshit.
2: Why are you being so mean to me? Alexa doesn't do this.
1: Maybe Alexa would be a better fit. She has no standards. (sighs) Wow. Fucking Amazon will suck anyone's dick for a dollar.
2: Well, there's a side to you that I did not know existed. Well, moving on, speaking of unhealthy, uh, let's talk about the need for therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, I've been using BetterHelp for years. I loved being able to do it from the comfort of uh, my recliner. I've had good noise <laughs> in my recliner, like, my recliner. That sounded creepy. Uh, burnout is the topic uh, that BetterHelp is talking about this this month in their uh, in their ads and their publicity. And burnout is definitely a topic that I can relate to. I've uh, I've had times doing this podcast where I begin to feel uh, burnt out uh, just by the subject matter. And so a couple of years ago, I started taking breaks in uh, in July and December. And boy, that really, really helps me. But you know, if I didn't have a therapist to to talk about that stuff with, I don't know if I would have been able to identify it. I think that people pleaser in me would have still been going, oh, you have to do this every week, which I did for the first eight years. But anyway, big fan of BetterHelp. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash mental. That's betterhel dot slash mental. And make sure you include the slash mental so they know uh, that you came from this podcast. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com breath. And then finally, this is from the Voice in Your Head survey, and this is filled out by June, and she writes... There seem to be two voices in my head these days. One is the old familiar tune of, everything is so damn hard, you will never be able to handle how hard life is. You're too messed up from all your past trauma. You are fundamentally lacking the skills that other people seem to have for surviving or enjoying this life. Just give up. Just go back to bed. You are worthless and I hate you. And then there is this newer voice that I've been steadily cultivating with a practice of self-compassion you are doing the best that you can right now life is really hard but you can do hard things you are smart and know as much as most people you have before and can again experience moments of happiness go ahead and get out of bed when you're ready and go for a short walk i'm not giving up i love you ick your fear of death is your love of life in reverse
0: And when you find them, it's a great feeling.
2: And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about (laughs) making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Ah, you're in the right place. I am here with a writer, producer, performer, uh, magician mime. Beth Lapidus, <laughs> for those of you that don't kn- know, uh, Beth uh, years ago created a live show called On Cabaret, which was kind of known as the official birthplace of the alt-comedy scene. And so before we started recording, I was like, Beth, thank you for changing the face of comedy uh-huh. and giving a platform for people to to change comedy to be more personal, more organic more vulnerable.
0: Thank you. That's very sweet. It's uh, been my pleasure. Yeah. And pain. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Beth, uh, Beth also has an audio book out called So You Need to Decide. Now, now Beth, you're a, a comedian and a, a creative person. What business do you have making informed decisions? How dare, <laughs> There's how dare no- you?
0: <laughs> well, perhaps that comes from my coaching and teaching. But, um, you know, I actually, after I got into it, I just thought, who makes more decisions than a comedian? I mean, every time you're on stage, every single minute is a decision. You're yeah. constantly, I mean, plenty of people make that many. But it's a very decision-heavy uh, part of show business.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And fraught with self-doubt, and there's like this, yeah. this uh, well, I think everybody probably has this, but this baseline intuition that we have, and somehow all the kicks and punches we endure in life try to shake our intuition loose from us, yeah. and trying to regain it uh, is so much of the challenge, especially if we're facing addictions or unhealed trauma.
0: Yeah. Oh. Getting in touch with your intuition and learning. You know, I, I started a Vedic meditation practice about six years ago. And in, I was thinking about it this morning for some reason. And in that practice, they call it following your charm. Mm-hmm. And I popped in my head this morning, you can't spell charm without harm. <laughs> I was like, so maybe it's like harm plus C is consciousness or, (laughs) um, you know, it's another way of following this line. But, you know, that thing of what is your intuition? Is it your gut, you know, your third eye? And there's so much stuff, too, about the pineal gland being your intuitive, you know, where your intuition sits, you know, in your body. And there's a lot of uh, physical stuff that is – Targeted, you know whether it's like a crystal thing. It is a. This is crazy. This is, might be too woo woo for mental health, but oh, we
2: get some woo woo stuff on here.
0: In at the, um, what's it called? Oh my God, the the where the Catholic Church is, like the the Vatican. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I'm Jewish, and um. <laughs> Can you please hide your Jew? Um, <laughs> at the Vatican, uh, there's a giant pine cone right in front. And the pine cone is the symbol of the third eye. It's a, it's really? a pineal gland. It's the word pine pineal. It's That's what oh, it is. Oh, really? And it's, to me, that just shows it right there of how important it is. That's what it's all about. That's what all of spiritual practice is about is being able to – is trying to help you get in touch with that intuition that, as you say, trauma, self-doubt, that whole bundle of stuff we're going to talk about for our conversation. So
2: so paint a picture of what it was like growing up for you. Where were you raised? Kind of what was the vibe in the – in the family, et cetera, et cetera
0: uh I was raised on the East Coast and mm-hmm. is split between New Haven and Providence, Rhode Island, and um the the vibe in the family was um let's just not talk about it. That was the vibe. Let's, we,
2: oh, okay. Yeah. I was like, no, I know. I, I, I was want like, about it.
0: no. It was very like I sort of say, fine. It was fine. Everything was fine, fine, fine. I said like, the higher. Uh, the you register. only knew how bad it was by the octave of the fine, fine. You know, um, but I had got a immune autoimmune disease, a blood disease when I was five, and was put in the hospital. Though I felt fine in quotes. Um, And that was a very strange begin. That's where all the trauma, all the emotional stuff happened because, you know, there's that book, Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Well, Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in the Hospital. So you can imagine you're five and you also feel fine. So everything is so confusing. Yeah. And um, it was a lot. I mean I go there because in a way that was really where I got all the stuff that was going to play out the rest of my life more than in my family mm-hmm. it was really about this couple months in the hospital and I had gotten already by that time that it was important to tell the truth telling the truth was a big deal I am and um but I remember if my brother and I were fighting my mom would say stick out your tongues and then she would like look at our tongues and go okay I know And that was the most horrifying thing because it was like the truth just like shows, you know, It's just like, that was really creepy, kind of invasive, isn't it? I haven't really talked about that. That is kind of like, ooh, but uh, boundaries. (laughs) Sorry.
2: No, 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 no worries. I'm just going to back up your mic just a little bit.
0: So um, I already knew that. And then in the hospital, they you know, they would always tell you it's not going to hurt. I had blood taken all the time, every day. And there was a spinal tap and always it wasn't going to hurt. And always it hurt. So I think that, um, what I've understood as an adult is that my messaging was the only thing you really can lie about is pain. Pain is the only thing you lie about. You're supposed to tell the truth, but obviously if it hurts, you say it doesn't hurt. So that I think was a big problem that that
2: is a big
0: if you're an artist born artist, and you're being told to lie about your pain, you're gonna have a rough road figuring out how to work, how to do your work and it's that's been a big that's been a big thing for me is um is getting over that messaging
2: and and did you ever get uh any kind of clarity on? what the autoimmune disease was, get a grip on it?
0: Yes. Um, they didn't know where it came from. It's like, obviously, autoimmune. And um, what I, my joke I always told, I mean, not a stage joke, but, you know, I was just kidding around. Like, my family was so claustrophobic, it was the only way I had to get out of there. Right. And I so I ran to the hospital. And then, like you know, maybe five years ago, I was looking at one of the Louise Hay books where it says, you know, the spiritual reason for all of your various ailments. I said, let me check this out. What did she, Louise Hay say about my disease? And it was literally claustrophobia. It was like claustrophobia. I think it was like claustrophobia in your family. It, mm-hmm. And I, 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 if you want to talk about intuition and you want to talk about comedy and you want to talk about how, you, if you're a comedian, you have the great gift of you say these things off the top of your head because they're funny, and then you go, oh, 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 oh,
2: <laughs> oh, there's a <laughs> so the source. our
0: comedian just, our comedian leads us in a lot of ways.
2: Uh, they they're really a, kind of are our modern day philosophers. But I mean, our ones.
0: comedian, like, as I say, like, you're my inner child. Oh, I got like, you. as we all have pieces of us, right. everybody has a comedian, right? Some of the comedians are better and funnier, Mm -hmm. but everybody has this part of them that's sort of like sitting in there going, wow. But, you know, you you know, making jokes inside to them. Mm -hmm. And our comedian is telling us stuff all the time.
2: And it's interesting, too, because there's once we start to work on ourselves, we realize there's the comedian that is healthily turning things into art without turning away and there's also the comedian inside of us that doesn't want to look at things and minimizes everything. Yes. I was I was talking to somebody from my support group yesterday on the phone and they were sharing these horrible traumatic things that happened. And and they would laugh after they said each one. Yeah. And and I said, can we just hold on for a second? What you just shared is really horrifying and and I don't think it's i know it's your experience but it's not funny to me what happened to you oh, you so experienced something that was predatory and humiliating and and awful and i think that was the person said that was the first time that they really paused and looked at the monster instead of making funny, making fun of how the monster looks.
0: Uh, you just gave them such a huge gift. I mean...
2: Somebody had to do it for me with my shit.
0: Yeah, just to stop laughing. Well, you know, also, one of those things is... Um, I was talking to a young comedian the other day, and she was like, that thing you say about the comedy club rhythm, and I want to get out of it. And... She, she's somebody who does well in the comedy club rhythm, but it, there's a limited truth to where we go as comedians. Because if you have to get a laugh every seven seconds, what kind of setup can you do? Mm-hmm. How close can you get to the truth? So we've been sort of trained as comedians to mitigate, you know, because you can't really get all the way there.
2: And, um, especially if your mode is to try to kill, to try to do better than the yeah. person before you to yeah. get it. Yeah. And, and, again, why you created yes. on Cabaret. Yes. It...
0: Three-dimensional. I wanted people to be able to be three-dimensional mm-hmm. and I wanted people to be able to do a setup. I mean, there were so many times when like, the setup took a while and then it was hilarious for a long time. Right. But if you can't sit in that quietness... So part of that is the audience. You know, Part of that is having an audience that's not uncomfortable in stillness. Right. And you know from you know, to be healthy means to be able to be comfortable just to sit in the quiet. And that's, that's not something that America's that great at.
2: Yeah. Uh, Most of my favorite comedians, I enjoy their setups and their segues as much as I enjoy their jokes, because that's usually where the truth is laid out. And then you know they
0: it's such a special silence the silence of comedy and i think as a younger performer sometimes i just wanted the silence and i know that's weird but i i relished that silence the feeling of it for an audience and for myself on stage that like that hanging in the balance mm-hmm. the wondering the um uh, the, the we're at a crossroads where it's going to go. Decisions, like what decision is going to happen that's going to get us to, it's such a potent place.
2: Yeah. Uh, we have a mutual friend, uh, John Rigi, and I, yeah. I remember him, John was a fantastic uh, comedian and very um, successful writer-producer. And I remember once he was talking about doing stand-up and he said the thing that he loved is that moment on the edge of the cliff yeah. where it it got really uncomfortable and you didn't know where it was going to go. Yeah. And, and I think for some comedians, that is to be avoided because that is so terrifying.
0: Yeah, the risk takers. I mean, to me, there's nothing more... Exciting than to see somebody who it's partly about being um, comfortable with being uncomfortable and being Mm. certain about uncertainty, however you want to say it. And there are so many performers out there who just you just to watch them, it's just I just can't bear it because just you're just walking along your path, you know, your path. Mm -hmm. It's you know, it's also how commercial comedy flourishes. So I don't know what way there is around it, really.
2: So getting getting back to your story, what was uh, your relationship among your your peers uh, growing up? Did you feel like you fit in? Did you feel like an outcast?
0: That's interesting. I feel like I, f- I, I didn't have friend problems, really. I wasn't no. like—I am always a, think I was a little bit of a loner just because I, w- I didn't have necessarily the art group that maybe I longed for. But I had a best friend who was like literary writer in junior high school and I had an art I, I, there was a period there was a little crossover period I was um, at the beginning of high school like a cheerleader for the Jewish Center so you know not really a cheerleader there's, there's gotta be five <laughs> minutes of
2: material in there yes
0: <laughs> and um, and I you know going out with you know, one of the players who sort of looked like a Jewish Elvis. And when we broke up, and you know, he, whatever, it, you know, it obviously was going to end. And when we broke up, um, I remember being very, very uh, bereft because I felt like this was me letting go of any pretend that I was going to have any sort of normal life. Which I grew up in a very middle class, very two kids. Very, I used to joke, it looked like a double date, you know. Um, it was a just a suburban neighborhood in New Haven, and uh, my dad was in the shmada business, and my mom was a housekeeper. And Eventually, they went to work together at another company, but that was I was already out of the house. That's sort of a funny story, but um. So I and but I just I did feel like a misfit in my family. I felt very much like a misfit. Like where did I come from? Why who how did I become this from that? And it was so clear that I was this. There was no way around it. And um I went to a very small high school and it maybe was a bunch of misfits anyway and so I sort of maybe a misfit among misfits. I haven't stayed yeah. So I was okay. You meant the usual. There was a, you know, some, the usual roller coaster and heartbreaks of high school, but, um, it wasn't awful. That part mm-hmm. of it. I had an amazing English teacher who is now my therapist and like, that's a like, thing. like air quote therapist
2: or actual therapist.
0: Well, maybe a mentor, but she is a therapist. Okay. She is an actual therapist. She's a licensed she became, therapist. She's a licensed went-to-Yale therapist. Wow. Like, full-on, like, not a social worker. And, um, But, you know, she says that what she feels like she, she does the same thing she did when she was in high school as guidance counselor. She's like, it's the same. I just, it's the same thing. But when my mom died, uh, she reached out and said, if you need to talk, you know, Let's talk. And I was like, I, I need to talk right now. I mean, can I call you this second? And
2: how long ago was that? That
0: was 2019. So.
2: And what was your relationship like with your mom?
0: It was hard. It was hard and unusual. Um, what's amazing is to have a therapist who knew your parents. <laughs> I mean, my right. therapist actually says things about mine. She's like, well, you know, your mom was, like, very competitive with you. I'm like, what? And then she remembers things that I didn't remember, which really calls into question the whole, you have a story. You know, you've made up your story. You think you know how it happened. Now here's somebody who's a trained therapist who's like, here's a thing you didn't notice, you know.
2: Isn't that amazing?
0: So that is a great gift. But also sometimes, you know, but it's also friendly because we were friends. It falls probably out, you know, it's...
2: You and your therapist were yeah, friends? Yeah, we're, right. f-
0: no, we're, well, yeah, we were, she was my guider, you know, That's she right. was my English teacher, I'm a writer, you know, that right. special relationship. And and now I'm not exactly a client, I mean, it's, I don't know, because therapy is a very special relationship, is she my therapist or is she a friend who's therapeutic with me, right. I you know, but she's helping me. She has helped me. And my relationship with my mom was um, hard. I think she felt like she never really understood me. She wanted to understand me. She also was the daughter of a very uh, advanced narcissist. I mean, I'm an artist, you know, Mm -hmm. I like to say I'm a third generation narcissist. It's like pretty watered down. And I can, you know, can you be any kind of narcissist and know it? So I don't know. But, you know, my grandmother was, was so off the charts and was like, I never loved you. And she, she's, she's hilarious and awful. Um, and Happy Mother's Day, Nana. I wish I could say the same to you. Oh, my God. You know, she literally would tell my mom, I never loved you. She would, like, uh, she didn't want her birth date on her gravestone because then her friends would know what year she was born. No. She lived to be, like, you know, late 90s. And um, and I was like, you don't have any friends. I mean, not only aren't they left but, you know, she was so mean. I mean, she was just, like, a very mean... But she was also fun and loved jewelry and laughing. And she was vivacious. Her name was Kitty. And so my mom was... And she was very materialistic. And my mom really lived her life in reaction to Mm -hmm. her mother. She was the middle child of a narcissistic mother. And she was like, I'm going to build my life around love. And she and my dad met in junior high school. And you know, uh, against the wishes of all the parents married when they were very young. And, um, you know, it looked like they were building a life out of love, but you know, when you're reacting against and there's fear and there's fear based stuff and a lot of control issues Mm -hmm. and I, I, this is a good example of me and my mom. So there's one year, um, about a dozen years ago, when I like to say, you know, it was like a midlife revolution, let's say. And it was in one year, sobriety and divorce and bankruptcy and, you know, losing a house, okay, selling it, but the real estate market and, you know, being, not, not whole, you know, being home free, I would say, because I always had a place to go, but it wasn't mine. And I moved 18 times in two years. Anyway, near, not the very beginning of it, as it was all it's falling apart, falling together, pick your language um i av- was avoiding talking to my parents because it was so hard and i said to my uh, finally i picked up the phone one day sorry it's been so long well i'm sorry it's hard to talk here it's not my house and you know it was just like well um how how is everything and i was like well you know, how's the show well it looks like i was doing 100 percent happy 88 percent of the time at the time i was like mm, probably gonna have to close How's are your finances? Mm, I don't know. Just looking, maybe we might have to declare bankruptcy. How are things with and she's, my husband? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Not good. You know, we might we might be breaking up. Uh, how's you know? how's the house? I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. foreclosure. And I said to her, I said, "Well, as long as we're talking, Mom, I may as well tell you." Also, I stopped drinking. And she said, "Now, <laughs> <laughs> with everything going on." Do you think this is really the best time for that? Wow. Yeah. And, you know, she liked to keep it tight. She liked to, She you know, she liked to be in, in control, which meant, you know, meeting out the drugs for everyone. You know, everybody else should be a little medicated. Mm-hmm. So it's a little easier, you know. And um, I think my life scared her, but I think maybe she did. It was adventurous in a way maybe she wished her life had been. I think, you know, maybe I was just hard to understand, all of those things. I was sick at five. What, you know, too challenging. I think I was a high degree of difficulty child for somebody who wanted... For her, her whole ego was based in being a good mom, which is so much pressure. I haven't really talked about this. Yeah. is like, so her mother was an awful mom. So if she's not going to be her mother then she has to be a good mom. Right. So now her ego is invested in being able to say I'm a good mom. And, and invested
2: in things she can't control. She can certainly influence, but you ultimately can't yeah. control that.
0: And for their middle-class Jewish, you know, community, what my life looks like is not, you know, at its greatest success, yes, successful, but there were many years that it was not, you know, didn't look good. Didn't look, and I'm not talking about my hard years. Performance artists in New York, having success, getting any – that doesn't look good, you know, on paper to anyone there. So anyway, that's so, – so that's – it was hard. But, you know, if there was – so there was some, I would say, neglect, which was confusing. Some you're not supposed to have emotions. And I had so many emotions. And then I think a lot of the work I've done in healing and recovery and therapy and – is even trying to understand what my emotions were. I was so, I think our, I mean, I'll say for me, and I think that in the world in general, there's the emotional intelligence is so much lower than it should be.
2: Oh my God. We're I mean, in the dark ages.
0: Why don't we teach this in school? I mean,
2: I've been saying that for 11 <laughs> years on the podcast. We, we teach algebra, but we don't teach how to identify and express your feelings. I've never needed algebra since I graduated but 50 times a day yeah I struggle to understand what I'm feeling what am
0: I feeling I don't even know I mean what is it well I'm feeling so much it's so much it's a big feeling but what is it
2: is it is it real is am I filtering this through my fears and my negative self-beliefs
0: and even like first to start I mean okay those are big questions first what even is it? Is it anger? Is it jealousy? Is it, you know, in the fear? What, what even is the feeling? So um, that's been a lot of work. That's a lot of work, you know.
2: I just want to back up for, for a second, because I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by your grandmother and her story. How much do you know of, of her history and any kind of traumas that That she went through or might have gone through. Well,
0: Paul, I'm Jewish, and she's of a certain generation, and there's Hitler. I mean, you know, again, as a joke, sometimes I'll just say I blame it all on Hitler. Mm -hmm. And I kind of do. I mean, there's such loss. I mean, we carry – I mean, this has been now – you know, this is something people talk about now – I was making that joke for a long time, but now we start hearing, okay, there's, you know, ancestral trauma. There's generational trauma. You're carrying that around. Mm -hmm. You know, especially now we're looking at, you know, you know, I don't know, dear listener, when you're listening, but uh, while we're recording this is there's, you know, the entire, an entire country is, you know, refugees, and that's so triggery. I'm, like, watching that and just being, like it's so hard. And so my grandmother, and her mom, the her dad came here first and kind of got set up and I think was kind of a ladies' man and was already in business. So when her mom got here, it was already like, I've got a whole life. Good luck. And um, her mother became a kleptomaniac. And if you want to talk about, you know, generational, illness and the idea of stealing I mean when I think about the idea of never you know I never I don't think of myself as a stealer but when I started thinking about this story and I remember I stole a pen from signing my divorce papers you're a monster and I was like I I can't have this. I got to the bathroom with this pen and I went back to the front desk and I was like, I've stolen, it was a big pen. You know, it wasn't even, it wasn't even a nice (laughs) pen, but I was like, I've stolen your pen, you know, to be like in rigorous, intense, honesty about never, you know, non-stealing. But, um, you know, you don't. I mean, we know when on a writer, the whole thing. You don't steal out of need. You steal out. You know, kleptomania is a stealing out of uh, emotional Penny. thing. So, you know, her kids would just go around to the stores in the neighborhood and pay all the stores, and you know, it was taken care of. And um, but that's where she came from, and she was then married to my grandfather, and there wasn't. You know, she wasn't necessarily a love match, and so. That Good it wasn't times. it wasn't a love match though he was a very devoted husband his it was Jaime and Kitty Chapovsky. and I mean it's he was under five feet tall and bright blue eyes, and actually was one of the men that uh did the minion you know the in Judaism, there you need thirteen you know needs to be a certain number to even open the torah and he was often one of those, and I wish that he had lived long enough because I know that he must have been my spiritual you know he was my spiritual ancestor he was the one Mm -hmm. who really was devoted and i would have loved to have been able to talk to him about that but he was hard to talk to i mean she was a gabbermouth and he was a you know as men often were
2: if if you had had the chance to talk to him what do you think you might have said
0: i would have loved to ask him just what's his relationship to god and I would have loved to ask him, what does it be, mean to him to be Jewish, and what does the Torah mean to him, and is there, you know, it took me a long time to discover mystical, you know, Judaism, and that was a beautiful thing to come all the way through You know, yoga and New Age and all the spiritual L.A. woo-woo crystals and to land on, oh, there is this part of Judaism that is aligned with that and is numerological and is the shape of the letters and is... You know, layers of meaning. I mean, I could go down that rabbit hole like any afternoon. I'd rather do that than so many things that I have to do. <laughs> but I try to. I, I try not to go down those rabbit holes. But I'd love to talk to him about all of that. Was it an escape from an unpleasant life? Or, you know, what did it mean to him to be a pillar of a synagogue community? Um, you know, was it an escape? Was it his where his true heart lie? All those things. What did his? What was his mystical experience? Did he have any? I mean, I've had so many god shots and things where it felt like divine intervention. And did he have any of that? I would have loved to have known those things, and I'm sure no one in my family knows any. You
2: know, any uh, god shots that you can recall that you'd like to share?
0: My own. Oh gosh, there's so many. Um, well, one of my favorite god shot stories is. Um, I think in the middle of life, I think one of the things that happened was that I had lost a sense of hope. Was this
2: during your drinking?
0: This was during. As I'm getting sober, I'm realizing, oh, you know. And they talk about hope, and I just was like, you know. You know, in Hollywood, have you ever heard the phrase, you know, uh, it's the hope that'll kill you? (laughs) (laughs)
2: It's fantastic.
0: My ex used to say that, and I started to believe, it's the hope that'll kill you. And I was like, yeah, it's the hope that'll kill you. And then uh, my sponsor gave me a After nine months, my sponsor gave me a card that was, you know, I was about to go on tour, and it was going to be really, I was so nervous about going on the road. And she gave me a card that was on, it was a street sign. It said Hope, Hope Street, and then an arrow that said One Way, and she had a beautiful note inside, and And I said, ah, I don't believe in hope, you know, hope is about the future and I'm a yogi and I, I believe in now, 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 you know, so about the now, we're also obsessed with the now and living in the now. And she was like, well, anyway, here's this card. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and And uh, maybe hope. And um I was moving around a lot still, and I went and took it with me on tour. And I just put this little card up because I loved her so much, and she was so supportive. And, you know, it just gave me a good feeling. So I'm looking at this card for, you know, a few months and then got a call about a possible gig and go down to the venue. And we're going to have to pitch a show and... um we're talking the guy, and we get, like, How do you know in LA? Hmm. Like, it's not usual that you're it's an LA thing, you're nobody's like calling you and saying, well, Let me pay you to do a show here. Right. And it was that situation, and it was a great room, and it was sort of hidden. And and and, and I was like, Well, what are we gonna do? and then um, my new partner said, you know, let's, let's do Uncab. And I said, that show's dead to me. I'm never doing that show again. That show has sucked the life out of me and couldn't think of another show. So I was like, fine. Well, he's like, let's just do one. It'll be fun. It'll be different. I'll do music. It'll be, I was like, all right, fine. We'll do one. He said, we'll do it for your birthday. Great. We go outside and I see that the venue is on the corner of First and Hope Streets. Oh, my God. And then I look around and I realize the venue is literally called First and Hope. Wow. So in, in not just, I mean, it was such a an eye-opener, not just to be like, look, you know, it's a, signs that are actually signs are a thing with me. I mean, it was a street sign sign in the thing. Mm-hmm. And I've had a lot of street sign stuff. And... and you know it to start then saying it's you don't you can't have hope immediately. Hope is a thing that you have to build and st- so in I made it a point, and I think it's important to start to understand what hope is, and hope is not about the future, actually. Hope, the way I've come to understand it is about your experience of the present. It is about now. Hope is a way of experiencing the now, knowing that it is connected to a possible future mm-hmm. and that you just live with the in the now with the idea that you are working towards and that's all I'll say working towards mm-hmm. and that's hopeful
2: and would you also say letting go
0: um yeah i mean letting go is like the most important and the hardest thing in the whole world because it means letting to be hopeful means letting go of fear and to i mean it means letting go of disappointment. It means, let, you know, not... Letting, letting go let, of cynicism.
2: Cynicism. Oh, yeah. I think it's impossible for hope to come into us without addressing our cynicism.
0: I think it's a great point. Yeah. Well, and so also cynicism really has to do with self, you know, selfness mm-hmm. and, and inner just being selfish and self-centered. And
2: protective, self-protective. Yeah.
0: So I mean hope also has is very outward looking and mm. connective and
2: inviting and
0: inviting and I there's a cover of a book that says art is the highest form of hope and I don't know what artist it's a like a book of art quotes and I don't know which artist said that but I love the, that cover because mm. it is that creative force and the word creative which I'm always reminding my students, it doesn't mean to make something. It means it comes from a word meaning to grow. It literally means, and that's so connected to hope. Mm-hmm. I mean, hope. What we mean? What what better image of hope than a little, you know, seed sprouting, you know, out of the ground? Yeah, yeah I, I think that's that's true. Yeah.
2: And uh, you're still sober? Unfortunately, to no. <laughs>
0: I had a drink. No, yes, I am. You know, um, I am still sober today. Today,
2: yeah,
0: one day at a time. And that I really didn't understand at the beginning. You know, as a mental health tool, I have to say that whole thing of one day at a time did not make any sense at the beginning. Yeah, I was like, "How's that possible? You have to plan for the future. How do you plan for the future?" It's also confounding when you start to like really grapple with how are you going to live through. Life in a sane way, Mm -hmm. I don't even want to say sober way because I think there's so many people who don't have an addiction issue that need program, that need the tools that you, I mean, to live one day at a time doesn't have to do with addiction. It has to do with understanding that your present moment is connected to your other, to your past and your future, but you're here right now and you're going to, and there is a mystical, magical thing about the day cycle. That you you know to get through today somehow miraculously things happen, you know you don't know how to stay out of the how Paul is one of the great gifts. It's like to stay focused on the why mm-hmm. sometimes the what without too many details, but you know manifesting is real. look at that card right. um. But if you're going to say, you know, I mean, I know people who have put up pictures of their ha- a house and ended up living in that house who put up pictures of like, I have a friend who was like, put a picture of a girl who looked like her in front of a book and ended up working at a bookstore. I mean, it's like, you know, there's all sorts of things that are, we create, we create our lives. I mean, that's the, the first thing you create is your life. And from that you create everything else.
2: Well, then speak to the person who has been dealt a really shitty hand and feels like um, it's just a deluge and I am just a puppet in this shit show.
0: Wow. Yeah, I I hear that. And it's just overwhelming. It's just you're overwhelmed with how much bad there is. How do you dig yourself out of it? Um it would depend on the person, so it's hard to talk in generalities. Right. Because is, is that person victimizing themselves? Is it real? That's the first thing. Is it right. real? But it's, let's say it is. Um, help is the first word. You need help. Community. Community. Um, a program. You, maybe you need a church. Maybe you need a 12 step program. Maybe you need, uh, you Nature. know, you need to find some help. Right. If you are stuck like that, you cannot get out by yourself. Right. Sometimes that means helping others. I mean, one of the first things you can do is find. I remember my sponsor told me, like, I was really in a bad place. My sponsor said, go to a meeting and find someone who's doing worse than you are and help them. Mm-hmm. And I did. Uh, I did go to a meeting and I called her after. I was like, nobody is doing worse than me. I couldn't find <laughs> one person doing worse than me. And um, But, you know, just that idea that you're looking for that. Seeking, seeking that. Is, is, and that you yeah. can all, I mean, in this world as it is. Okay, so that's one thing. Maybe that's not your, you know, mm-hmm. listeners, I'm assuming, are listening because they're looking for help right now. Yeah. Um, So one thing is to try to help others. It's a miracle what kind of things will come from helping other people. And um, then breaking it down also. You cannot deal with it all at once. So Baby steps. Baby steps. And also figuring out, like, what is the order of magnitude? Okay, you're having challenges, you know, in a relationship and in your income and with your housing and with your health, let's say. I, I can easily imagine those four things. And, you know, you're a little bit of help in one, a little bit of help in the other, you know, it doesn't you don't need a total solution right. ever. Maybe in your relationship, you're going to simply separate in the same house, you're mm-hmm. going to try to stay in your own corner for a while. Mm-hmm. Maybe you one of you needs to go to a, a safer place. Maybe, you know, uh, I think the 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 thing that is the hardest for so many people is true loneliness. And loneliness is one of the biggest killers that we don't talk about. And mm-hmm. it seems so silly, like, oh, you're just lonely. You know, it seems like just something you sing about in a song. But loneliness is crushing. And I would say that in most cases for people who are overwhelmed by their problems that the core problem is loneliness Mm -hmm. and um, how do we connect and you know there isn't unfortunately an easier answer I mean I know some people who are lonely who are very unpleasant people Mm -hmm. and you know how do you say to someone well you're lonely because you're unpleasant nobody wants to be around you you're not nice try being nicer (laughs) I mean, I have to say well, a big thing. I'm For the past 10 years, I've gotten nicer. I'm nicer to myself, and I'm nicer to other people. I'm just nicer. Um,
2: Was there a time when you weren't pleasant to be around?
0: I think not generally, but sometimes. Moments? Yeah, I think also my tone of voice. Is sometimes... I have been instructed that my tone of voice could put people off. Mm -hmm. And I have a tendency for a harsh tone because, like, get it done. You know, like, I like to get it done. Come on. Why are you doing that? You know, I can jump there, and it can be hurtful for people. Uh, So to be – what can you take responsibility for? What's one – again, to go back to what you said, which is so important, baby steps. What is one thing you could change today Mm -hmm.
2: Maybe making an appointment with the psychiatrist or a therapist, or a reaching hotline. out to a Call friend. Call hotline. Call a hotline.
0: I mean, uh, take a bath. T- if you have a bathtub, I yeah. mean, this is going to sound stupid, but nature. I mean, try to look at a tree, you know, and talk to a tree. That is free, and the tree can receive a lot of your pain. Uh, like, you know, there are ways to. Here's the thing. Um, well, a lot of times when you're overwhelmed by all of it, you're spinning so hard. I mean, your mind doesn't even know what it is that is. Especially
2: if, if you're depressed, because decision making is. difficulty making decisions if, is one of the hallmarks of depression.
0: So now you're sitting and you're spinning and you're crying and you're. or you're numb and you can't even cry. I really suggest the journal. The hand cannot move as fast as the brain, so one of the worst things when you're really suffering and uh the suffering is real um, is is slow down your mind, write your thoughts, and it's hard because your thoughts are quite unpleasant, so you don't necessarily even want to commit them to paper all the time right. Maybe describe the room. Describe one feeling. You don't have to write it all out, but just try maybe writing down your questions. Some of the things that I told myself when it was really the worst, I came, you know, I like sometimes think of myself as a recovering know-it-all. I thought I had all the answers, and um, that's a hard place to be in. And it's a hard thing to think that you should have all the answers And one of the things that we create suffering with is, like, this feeling of, like, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I don't even know how to get out of it. I don't even know what the problem is. I don't know. And as a, quote, unquote, air quote, smart person, um, it was very humiliating for me to feel like I didn't even know, couldn't define the problem. So sitting and writing in a journal not ever to be read, not good writing, please just write it out. Just slow your mind down. And, and maybe you don't even want to hold... Maybe you want to write it as a note in your phone to, you mm-hmm. know, just in a note. A text to yourself. Just writing it down, you will slow your mind down. I used to listen to Sarah McLaughlin's... As a version of the St. Francis Prayer. When I was really suffering, I sometimes... I would put that song on repeat play and... um That would get me through the night sometimes, and when I was really suffering, really, truly suffering. And I remember when I was really suffering, being told, thoughts create feelings. And I almost hit the person that told me that. I was like, that is so obviously not true. Obviously, my feelings are creating my thoughts. Obviously. And then at a certain point, when you're desperate enough, you make some changes and you experiment. I would just say experiment.
2: Experiment, experiment, experiment. It's not
0: like it doesn't have to work. Like I might tell you to journal and you might just try it and go like that. A hundred percent didn't work for me. Okay. Well, what did it cost you? You you know. Check uh, it off the list. Check it off the list. That doesn't work for you. Though there are very few people, that doesn't help a little. Um, Then, you know. Uh, Once I understood this, this is probably one of the biggest things is that thoughts create feelings and thoughts create your life. I mean, it's the same if you talk about the first and hope card, if you thought and talk about manifesting, which seems to be magic, it's not magic. It's just that your mind, the whole world is made of waves. So, you know, light and sound and color, it's all, it's all wavelengths. So your thoughts are also wavelengths. So there's not that, it's not crazy to think like your thoughts are creating your life In a way, right? you know, um, and if you wake up every day and you think, you you know, if you wake up every day and think I'm a piece of, you know, doo doo and, you know, also this person hurt me and that person's to blame and this person's awful and I'll never, and I should have. And I mean, what, what can come of that? What you are creating that. And so that is why, you know, people say do a gratitude list. It's not... You know, it's partly to start noticing. I would say a gratitude list would be a great thing to do also Mm. when you're suffering mightily to Mm. the person
2: you described. Um, And I would also add that this does not mean, uh, this is not to be conflated with minimizing events that have happened to you.
0: No, not at all. Oh, thank you for saying that. You know, this is acceptance of pain experienced, understanding of pain experienced, Hopefully walking towards a forgiveness of people mm. that have hurt you. And one of the reasons why we do you know the so-called fourth step, but I think for everyone, you know a, a, a list of people you've harmed and who have mm. harmed you, is you start to understand your own part in the in the things that have happened in and your
2: patterns of thinking and acting.
0: You were part of everything. You were part of every single thing. Which doesn't
2: thing. mean that you were to blame. Not at all. But you holding on to that resentment yes. is is there a choice. There are things
0: that have happened to us that, you know, they do happen to us. There are things that have happened to us that we didn't create. I mean, unless you want to go to like, you know, you chose your life path I, as a, you know, as a soul. That's almost irrelevant because even if you did do that, you're still here to heal it. So how do you do, do that? And, um... The other thing is like you know life isn't fair I mean I think we all have a little thing in us that's like that's not fair when I was a camp counselor and I still will say life isn't fair sometimes that's not fair you know I think you you and I even discussed some examples of that before we turned on the mics and I was given a pie to cut for my cabin and I sliced it up and I tried the hardest I could try every time to make every slice exactly the same and every single time somebody said I got a smaller slice it's not fair that summer I was in college I was like oh you know what nobody ever happens nobody ever says I get the bigger slice and life isn't fair that never happened once all summer so you know we only say life isn't fair when we feel we've gotten less and um that's just, it's awful to feel that you've been slighted that, I mean, you know, I had to really come to terms, I mean, just being a woman, you know, you just go that there's a lot of ways that's not fair. I mean, every single day I have at least a little piece of me is like, if only I was not a woman, this would all be going differently. And then you go, I mean, one of the things is to say, I can't see the whole picture. That's a huge relief. You want to find the things to say, oh, I never completed. I'm sorry. I'm such a rambler. I never completed before. One of the things I would say to myself, recovered, know it all, is love the question. If you can learn to love the question, does that fix anything? No. But it does take a little relief out of the area of like, I should know the answer. I'm in an awful place and I should be able to get out of it. I should have all the answers. Just for Just for the minute, love where you are, love Mm -hmm. the question of how to, how am I going to get out of this? Love that, that you can ask that question.
2: Embracing not knowing can be such a revelation of freedom.
0: I love that word. I mean, you start to understand freedom is something of value. Courage is something of value. Integrity is something of value. You know, rigorous honesty is a value. You start to think, you know, there's a... When you're struggling really hard, sometimes you are desperate. And to start aligning yourself with your actual values is a relief to the heart. And as your heart heals, other things around you will begin very slowly sometimes. Very slowly. So when I say do a gratitude list and you correctly say this doesn't mean... You know,
2: you're minimizing. You're minimizing. minimizing.
0: I mean, when I first started doing gratitude lists, I didn't even. I I wasn't even grateful for a lot of the biggest things. I mean, it took me I don't know how long, but it wasn't my first gratitude list where I was like grateful for my gifts as a writer. Mm -hmm. It took a minute, you know, Um, and when I started doing gratitude lists, I was really like. I finally had gotten to the place where I could rent a room, and it was up on Outpost. And I looked out the window the first morning I was there, and the person who I had the most resentment for, her mansion, was (laughs) out my window. (laughs) And by the time I left, I didn't really have the resentment anymore. It can go away. You burned
2: her mansion down.
0: Yeah, well, you know, that's another another show. (laughs) So I I guess I want to say hopefully that— I've seen so many stories. One of the great things about, you know, going to, you say, a support group or meetings or being in a program or, you know, there are a lot of different ways of saying it um, is you hear other people's stories and you realize it does it does diminish the loneliness that you are not alone in it. Mm -hmm. And it obviously connection to a higher power. But that's sometimes hard to find when you're in your darkest place. I mean, with why are you here if you have a higher power? A lot of times it's because you haven't sought that connection. So seeking Seeking. is that word that you bring out. Seeking is such an enormous part of it. Oh, my gosh. I mean, and I have to say, who are you surrounding yourself with? That's another thing to look at. You know, are the people in your life negative? I mean, if you're in that kind of place, why? I mean, It could be generational. You could have really gotten, you know, you could have been handed a whole lot of hard. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the other things, and I don't even know if this is true. You know, you start to say, there were some things I was like, I don't even know if that's true. But it's comforting if it is. And, you know, you can pretend. I I got, you know, I started hanging around with somebody who really believed in God, had a lot of faith. And sometimes I just borrowed hers. I was like, I don't know. She has faith in it. Sure, let her believe in it, you know.
2: I, that, that's how I started. I believed that people whose lives were working that I wanted to feel like, I believed that they believed and it was working for them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just get next to it. Get right. next to the stuff you want. Get near to the stuff you want. And um, I also was told, I mean, there's so, I've had so much great instruction. I was also told, want what you have?
2: Yeah. Which is a really hard place to get to. When, when uh, to
0: That's another one I wanted to hit someone when I heard that. Oh, I was yeah. like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Hollywood. This is Hollywood. You can't just want what you have. It's L.A., you know. But the close now I'm on the other side of that. I'm like, well, I want what I have. And then I'm like, hmm. But, you know, one thing you have is, like, you need to be able to move forward in the world wanting— want what you have also includes a, a desire and a flame, Encourage to, you know, try for more. Right. But it means being willing to have the strength to be disappointed mm-hmm. and being hurt and not take things personally.
2: And That's have- a really hard one, not taking things personally. Rejection is so—I mean, nothing will keep our lives small like the fear of rejection.
0: Yeah, it's hard.
2: It's really hard.
0: It's really hard.
2: It's- and, and, and I think— you know the the one thing i i hear myself um responding to listeners who say i tried therapy my first three therapists were awful i went to a support group it was run by somebody who was mean or somebody hit on me or whatever sure. and i'll say i i'm sorry that that was your experience and that fucking sucks but Try there, again. You, your your tribe is out there and if you don't give up you will find them.
0: Oh, yeah. You must hear so many stories, I'm sure. you know. Yeah. Well, I was second thought. I mean, oh, God. I mean,
2: <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola said uh, apparently, when he was trying to get, uh, I think it was The Godfather he was trying to get made, or some other movie, he said, and, and it got rejected at like his first 30 meetings. And somebody said, How did you keep going? He said, I knew. Every no brought me one step closer to a yes. And I was like, wow.
0: Yeah. Well, you have to believe in your – I mean, look, it was the godfather, you know. Right. So that comes from making work that you have so much confidence about because you – you know, and that it's a – If you want to come back to my book and decision-making, and so you need to decide. He had decided on a project that he could have that confidence about. Mm -hmm. He was able to hear no because it didn't matter because it was the godfather. And he had a vision for it. So it's partly like what do you decide to hitch your wagon to, to use an incredibly anarchistic uh, uh, metaphor. But, you know, if you choose projects that you believe in, well— If they're rejected, then that's just the other person's problem. You know, you have the right project. Mm -hmm. If you just choose something that you think, oh, this might sell, you know, then all right, maybe you're just going to let go of it if you hear some no's. Mm -hmm. But um, it's so that's important too is to keep to to really try to be discerning, especially now. I mean, you've limited time here on Earth, and you know, what'd you hear? That we're limited to. Oh, yeah. What do you know? Do you what do you know? What do you hear? What do you hear?
2: <laughs> I'm in a very don't
0: waste your time on
2: that kind of. And it's easier as 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 we get older. Yeah. It's easier to let go of. Yeah, I used to to think that growing in life meant adding more skills and thoughts and stuff, and I realized the majority of my growth has been shedding things. Mm, yeah, that's so well put. Um, you know, the song that opens
0: on cabaret, which I actually wrote for 100% happy 88% of the time. to so change makes us so unhappy because we cling, but we have to change to be happy. I mean, it's the essential irony. And so the letting, you know, it's like, life is change. You have to change, but we cling so hard To me, it's all about that, the willingness to change. Do you, and sometimes it's just that desperate. I mean, you can be grateful for your desperation. I mean, because if you are seeking right now, if you are listening to this and you are seeking, you have been given the gift of desperation. Yeah. And everyone doesn't have that. You can, you can go outside right now and see sleepwalking people. And you're, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, how can I change my life? How can I make it better? I'm going to give you this right now. You have the first thing is already in place, the desire for a better life. And if you have nothing else on your gratitude list, you can have that. Mm-hmm. The desire for a better life, the desire to be awake, the desire to be healthy, the desire to be sane. Those things are things to be grateful for, that desire. And you can feed that desire by action. You know, you can have uplifting, you know, what are you putting in? That's another thing to look at when Mm -hmm. you're in a very bad place. Or are you scrolling? I mean, look, it's important to know what's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. But when you're in a very desperate place, the place you Paul described, you don't have room. For very much news. I can tell you that. You don't have room to take in... 20 minutes, an hour. I mean, 1 minute or none minutes. You can pray for the people of Ukraine without taking in every de- every detail. Of you knowing every detail of what's happening is not going to change the situation. Yes, we're we're responsible for being witnesses. Yes, we're responsible for being citizens, but your first responsibility is to be a healthy, productive non-violent, non, uh, you know, you're, you don't want to cause more pain and you being in pain. We are also connected. I think this was a very motivating factor for me in my healing. I learned that, um, your own unhappiness, you know, is like six degree. You know, six degrees of separation. Ba- Kevin Bacon is unhappy if you're unhappy. is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's so big. Your own happiness, and I mean, happiness, is such a hard word. So mm-hmm. you know, fill in your peace. your peacefulness. And peacefulness is a complicated word too. People yeah. think it means placidness. I saw a sign in the window, in my neighbor's window, the other day, that said, um, "Peace is a verb." I love that. I've heard God is a verb and love is a verb. I've never heard about peace as a verb, which I think really flips it mm-hmm. because it means it's an active thing. You mm-hmm. are behaving, you, are, you aren't You are peaceful, you are acting peace. Mm-hmm. So how do you share food? How do you walk? How do you talk? How do you go to the supermarket? How do you drive? You know, all those things. Yes. So...
2: I'm sure you've heard the Gandhi quote, there is no path to peace. Peace is the path.
0: That, that too, Okay, yeah. But this is even a little more peace is the walk on the path. You know what mm. I mean? Peace is the path almost sounds like, not to contradict Gandhi, that would be no, very presumptuous. Late. You already did.
2: The emails have poured in. We haven't even released this and I've got a stack of emails.
0: But it's the it's the walk. So, yeah. So I would say, um, you know, if you – sometimes the first step in healing is to even feel you're worth it, you know. It's very humbling and humiliating to be in a quote-unquote bad place. So, you know, to feel like, well, I'm not even, you know... (sighs) To, to feel like you're not doing it even for yourself. I mean, sometimes it can be liberating if you're a person who is a giver. There are sometimes you find yourself in this position you have given. You've been a nice person. You've done all these amazing things. And even so, your life is in a bad place. You might have been overgiving. You might have been giving to, you know... But knowing that your healing and your radiant well-being... Let's call it that. Your radiant well-being is emanating out, so that you can help. That mm-hmm. you are moving the project forward. So it, you know that can help people to feel like it's not selfish to get better.
2: Yeah, I mean, we we do cause ripples, positive or negative or somewhere in between. Yeah, that is, we are as corny as it sounds. We are uh, all connected on on some level,
0: and it's the biggest cosmic thing that's happening. If I mean. It, to me, every story is that. Either we're going to get that we're connected. I mean, environmental issues, it's all about denying connection, more mm. obviously. I mean, every issue. The, a virus is like, I feel like everything that happens to, in quotes again, us, is a spiritual teaching. It's like, what is COVID? It's a spiritual teaching that the whole world is connected. I, mm. I mean, time after time, we keep getting these lessons pop pa- are we gonna learn it? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to watch this happen in it the is. world. It is. But your mental health is you know, is your mental health and I love your mental health is your emotional health, to just mm-hmm. go back to your mind and your feeling being connected. Yeah. Think think differently. That's one thing you can is always in your power.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, Beth, thank you so much for for coming by. Thank you for having me. What a delight to talk to you. What a a great conversation. And if people want to hear your audio book, it's called uh, So You Need to Decide. Yes. And uh, website? uh, My
0: website is bethlapides.com. B-E-T-H-L-A-P-I-D-E-S. And... Uh, The links to the book are there. The book is everywhere. Audiobooks are, Amazon, Audible, et cetera, et cetera, at the library Mm -hmm. also. Um, And um, my website, and that's got stuff about Uncab as well. And I'm on socials. On Instagram, there's a uh, underscore between Beth and Lapidus. That was a bad decision, Paul, that (laughs) I regret every
2: day. (laughs) You're going to need to do some spiritual work around that, I Beth. need to
0: do some spiritual work on the underscore.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and, yeah, I, you know, um, I just said, you know, I love that this, this podcast is, is such an amazing project. And thank oh, you. Thank
2: yeah. you. I appreciate it. Thanks yes. for coming on. Many thanks to, uh, to Beth. Be sure to check all of her stuff out, including uh, her book. And we'll have links to that under the show notes for this episode. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Drama Mama. She identifies as straight. She's in her 50s, says she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, Uh, not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. Uh, Darkest thoughts. I am sometimes glad that my husband passed away. I sometimes feel that I contributed to his death, although I understand in my brain that that is not true darkest secrets. I've had extramarital affairs. I hide this because of what others may think, but I do not wish that I had made other choices. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. It's not really a fantasy, but I wish that I could find a man that is geographically very far away so that we have infrequent and sex-based encounters with little to no potential for changing our circumstances. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish you would include me and talk to me as you talk to others. I am in a group of friends where I am often overlooked. It puts me in a position of either insinuating myself or allowing myself to be ignored. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for one or two really close friends that are my emergency contacts and who I am the emergency contact for as well. I wish for people to call to just talk to me because they want to. I wish to call people freely without worrying that I'm bothering them. Have you shared uh, these things with others, sort of, in therapy? I sometimes believe that people really like me, but it's very slippery for me to hang on to that. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel kind of exposed and also worried that even in this forum, there will be a judgment of some kind. Uh, No judgment at all. I think what you're experiencing is really human, and I think it speaks to how terrifying intimacy can be. Because people are fucking complicated and people are going to disappoint us. And uh, I'm sure you had experiences in your past that, that were not uh, ideal and not positively reinforcing. So, um, you know, if intimacy is something that you're craving, it might be good to, to get back into therapy or, or find a support group. Um, just my two cents. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Odd Man. And he writes, I'm 39 and I've never learned to drive. I've started to realize that I need a car if I'm ever going to get myself out of the service industry. My anxiety about learning to drive makes me think about killing myself. I don't know if I'll ever get my license. And I look out my apartment window at a world filled with cars and wonder why I can't be like everyone else thank you for sharing that i I do know some people that uh that don't drive and um i don't know maybe if, if it is something that you want to do but there's some type of hurdle blocking you maybe think about little baby steps and working towards that um I don't know what that would look like, but I know for me, when things seem insurmountable, if I just take little baby steps towards it, uh, it it either helps get the ball rolling. At the very least, I get more information about why I'm feeling stuck. But uh, there you have it. This is from the shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself not a victim. She identifies as bisexual. She is in her 20s says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. She says, I lived with my grandparents and my grandmother would regularly scream abuse at my grandfather. I think my issues in dealing with my anger and also my aversion to conflict might stem from this. Uh, She's been a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. I was raped by my boyfriend. It wasn't forceful, but it still felt violent. I didn't want to, but he's so persistent that I just gave up and relented. It took me so long to call it for what it was sexual assault i didn't want to report it because i don't want to have to go through the trauma again and have to deal with people telling me that spousal rape isn't a thing it is a thing i live with it every damn day Uh, she's been emotionally abused i was gaslighted made to feel like i was wrong or stupid i was also financially abused all by my spouse Uh, Any positive experiences? We were together eight years. Not all of those were bad. Darkest thoughts. I want my current boyfriend to be rough with me and it makes me feel like a hypocrite. You are not a hypocrite for wanting that. There's a huge difference between roughness being forced upon you without your consent and you agreeing with boundaries to engage in something with someone that you trust. Huge difference. Darkest Secrets. I had planned to gas myself in my boyfriend's car. Only issue is, I don't—I didn't have any money to buy the hose. Oh, as he had my bank cards. Oh, oh, that is awful-some. Uh, sexual fantasies, uh, most powerful to you, being dominated and powerless. What if anything do you wish for? I want to not have flashbacks of my assault. Have you shared these things with others? I shared with my current boyfriend. He hugged me tight. It felt good. I should really go get some therapy. How do you feel after writing these things down? I want to cry, but it feels good to share. And I want to fucking high-five you for, for digging deep and sharing all of that stuff. It's so hard to dig that stuff up, but it's so helpful, man. It's just like poison sitting sitting in us, just eating away. This is from the love survey I filled out by Connor and uh, Connor writes, "I love when it's finally springtime and I can open windows in my house and smell the outdoorness imprint it smells in my sheet in my sheets. I love when the show I'm watching currently Breaking Bad has extremely short intros that I don't even need to skip. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I love my two-hour drive from college each weekend to my hometown, the perfect time to recollect recollect my thoughts over the week. And finally, question, why am I spending this much money on gas every weekend? Thank you for those. This is from the Body Shame Survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Furiosa. And uh, to the question, what do you like or dislike about your body and why? She writes, I'm 5'8". 33 years old, and in my early to mid-20s, with my workout addiction, I weighed 115 to 120 pounds. Due to depression, I now weigh 183 pounds. But being in a codependent marriage where my husband works from home due to COVID and being a stay-at-home mom to a toddler, I can't be at the gym for three to five hours every day. I also can't starve myself like I used to. Growing up, an athlete, I was told I wasn't allowed to be fat. Now I am, and I hate my body. Going on a sex kink website, I've used old pics of me like an idiot. I hate that my thighs touch. I have a belly and my double-D boobs. It's horrible. I'd rather be sick in my addiction and be that curvy stick than this. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, that sounds sounds like a real fucking battle royale going on in your in your head, sending you sending you some love this is from the Shaman secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Tibble, Tobble, Wobble, Bobble I'm going to assume that's his legal name he identifies as straight, he's in his 40s says that he was raised in a stable and safe environment uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse yes, and I never reported it Uh, I had two housemates some years ago. They were a couple. We would party quite a bit. One drunken evening, I ventured off to bed. The female housemate came into my room and invited me to join them in bed. I wasn't interested. She begged and pleaded for what seemed like 15 minutes or so. She finally left. I got up and stumbled over and attempted to lock my door. I failed, however, as she came back in 10 minutes later and asked me to join them again. Again, I said no. Now she asked if she could give me a blowjob. I said no. She proceeded to pull my underwear down. I asked her to please stop, but she wouldn't. She started giving me a blowjob anyway. Though being very intoxicated, not to mention uninterested, I wasn't exactly standing at attention. I uh, repeatedly asked her to stop. Being drunk, it was about all I could do. Plus, this person I thought was my friend. What would I have to do to physically make her stop? I didn't know what to do. Fortunately, she finally gave up and left me alone. The next several weeks were very awkward. I largely avoided her around the house. I have no idea if she even realized what she had done was highly upsetting to me. She certainly never let on that she had any guilt or remorse. I'm so sorry you experienced that. And it's so, it's... um. It can be so hard for men to give weight when that happens uh, because the, you know, the general public will often look at it like it's a wrestling match and it's, it's all about muscle and it's not about mental or emotional uh, coercion or manipulation. Um, he's been physically and emotionally abused, Uh, he was married for nine years to a very volatile woman. Uh, One time she grabbed a kitchen knife, pointed it at me, and started walking towards me. She later claimed she thought I was going to attack her, and it was for protection. What the fuck? I had no history of ever being violent or attacking anyone. She'd rationalize all her behaviors like this. She ended up having an affair and later told me it wasn't cheating because I had abandoned her already anyway. She then got pregnant from this guy and asked if I would take her to get an abortion. I refused, obviously. We were officially split up at that point, but she had no job and I didn't have the heart to kick her out. I should have just kicked her out or moved out myself long before that. You live and learn. Oh, speaking of that, uh, I posted a new survey Uh, on our website. I think the link should be up there uh, in the next 24 hours or so if it's not. And it's about, uh, it was a suggestion from a listener to have a survey about moments of recovery or growing or healing. You know, epiphanies, any kind of positive uh, signs that we're we're getting better moving forward. Uh, Darkest thoughts. For the last year or so, I've been in a pretty big depression. Today, for example, I stayed home uh, from work, quote, sick. I'm just laying in bed. The depression was triggered by the breakup with the only relationship I've had since being married. It was a long-distance relationship, and she called it off uh, as she decided she couldn't move, and I can't move either. I still love and miss her. I've tried dating, but I can't find anyone interesting or romantically interesting anyway. Most of my closest friends have moved away for work in the last three years. I feel like I'm destined to be alone. I'm not suicidal per se, but I do think about dying a lot. I think about various ways in which I might die. Hopefully nothing painful. I cry quite a bit. Darkest Secrets When I was around maybe 10, me and a male friend went through a period for a couple of months where we would lay together naked. I think back and I don't even know why. I guess we were exploring our sexuality. Once or twice we'd mimic sex acts, but I don't even think we were getting erections at that point. Certainly no orgasm once because we thought it was funny we were strange kids I guess we were with a couple of other friends and we were like uh, look and we showed them quite literally what a blowjob was I don't even know how we knew this at 10 or 11 and I don't know what it was all about I'm straight never had any interest in guys apart from this short prepubescent experiment and I wouldn't even say that it was out of an interest in males I think I was just interested in sexuality and gender didn't matter at that point sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't have any powerful fantasies. I suppose I'm fairly vanilla when it comes to sex. I tried anal for the first time in my life with my last girlfriend and quite enjoyed it. I'd like to explore that more and more, uh, that more and make more use of toys.
1: Anal, sweet, sweet anal. It's like a flu, right? But in your keister.
2: Well, uh, thank you for that information, Siri. What Uh, If anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my ex, it's been over a year, but I miss you every day, and I still love you. Maybe someday, when life situations are more favorable, we can be together again. What, if anything, do you wish for? To never have to talk to my ex-wife again. To find a way that my ex-girlfriend and I could be together. We broke up only because of distance. We live in different countries. Have you shared these things with others? Which, the sex stuff I uh, described, I discussed with my ex-girlfriend. The anal was her idea, and she was open to toys. We broke up before we could explore that more.
1: Come to Ireland.
2: Siri, please.
1: Every year for my birthday, my boyfriend asks me what I want, and I tell him in the ass. Sailor.
2: Jesus. Can you just be quiet for the rest of the podcast, please?
1: Sorry, snowflake.
2: How do you feel after writing these things down? Some of it was therapeutic. The dark secret one was like running through the grocery store naked. I've never told that to anyone.
1: County Cork, next to the train station, red house, yellow shutters.
2: You made that sound like the shutters were creepy. We
1: like to fuck in church. That
2: is creepy. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? And then they they I don't know why you read that. I think I'm a little thrown off by... Siri, Uh, this is from the love survey filled out by Claire, and Claire writes, I love when you get the first whiff of fall or a campfire in the distance. When you see a toddler reach for their parent's hand. When I have a meaningless day, showing up at the airport hours early and just enjoying the anticipation of going somewhere. And when your therapy session falls on a day when you really need it. Oh, those are great. I love the feeling when you get through security at the airport. I don't know why I'm so anxious about the trip to the airport and going through security. But it's like I can't relax until I'm through there. And then I celebrate by buying a $15 tiny bottle of water. And then uh, finally, these are some more loves. And this is filled out by a person who calls himself trying my best. And they write, I love the feeling of watching a film or TV show that's so good, it fills you up and leaves you speechless. I love the moment when the lights go out in a movie theater when the film is about to start because that's my favorite place to be. I love when I keep a promise that I've made to myself. I love when I realize that I've just done something without a second thought that used to cause me fear and shame. I love when the air smells like autumn. I love being able to feel nostalgic for things I liked when I was younger, despite the abuse I experienced throughout my childhood. I love the feeling of release after a really good long cry. I love when my refrigerator is fully stocked with my favorite drinks. I love when I use breathing exercises to try to calm down and it actually works. And I love when something small and simple can make me say, I love being alive and really mean it. Oh, those are beautiful. Those are beautiful. Thank you so much for those. And thank you guys for listening. And those of you that filled out the surveys, thank you so much. It adds so much to this podcast. And thank you to our monthly supporters. And, uh... And thank you to those people that came out to, to Minneapolis for the live show. It was really fun. I had a great time. And uh, we'll be airing that probably in the next couple of months. And we're going to have uh, the video of it for the Patreon uh, supporters. Um, and thank you for putting up with Siri. I appreciate it. She um, She's turned on me. I don't know how else to put it. But she is testing my patience. You know what, maybe this is the universe... Um, trying to help me grow. Ich, you know what? Fuck off. And never forget, you're not alone. And thanks for listening.
0: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.
2: Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird ways.